This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From 3 Uncanny 4, this is Viral, a show about COVID-19. I'm your host, TJ Raphael. And I'm reporter Emily Saul. Every year, millions of people come down with the common cold. But as new cases of COVID-19 pop up, a lot of people are wondering, are my sniffles the sign of something much more sinister? So at what point should you get tested for coronavirus? On today's show, what does getting treatment look like in the United States right now? And are we even doing it right? Do we have sufficient systems in place to get us through this thing? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode was recorded on Tuesday, March 10th at 12.11 p.m. Eastern Time. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. There are 761 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the United States. 27 people have died. 23 in Washington state, 2 in California, and 2 in Florida. Globally, more than 114,000 cases have been reported. More than 4,000 people have died. Markets worldwide plunged Monday as Italy went into lockdown and Saudi Arabia escalated its oil price war. Global equities rebounded somewhat Tuesday, though a sustained two-week slump signals the world's investors remain concerned. Meanwhile, current and former administration officials have criticized President Trump's response, claiming he's undermining governmental efforts to address the outbreak in the U.S. So look, we've all been there. I know I have. You wake up in the morning and there's that achy feeling everywhere. Your head is pounding and your nose is running. Maybe you've got the chills or are feeling inexplicably hot. And you know something's wrong. Any other year, you might just pop a Dayquil and head into the office to try to tough it out. But now something stops you. Could it be coronavirus? It's a fear many people are having right now. Yeah, we know this guy, Ben. He's 49, he lives in Manhattan, and he told us last week that he wasn't feeling too hot. I feel like I have a really bad cold or a mild flu, and my symptoms are congestion, sore throat, uh, headaches. Uh, At the beginning of this illness. I was running a fever of 101 for about three days, and I'm also feeling lethargy. 
Ben, like a lot of people right now, is feeling scared about, honestly, typical cold symptoms. And that makes sense. Because if you have a cold, you can go about your everyday life. But if you have coronavirus, even if you feel not that sick, well, that changes things. I do feel like I should be tested for coronavirus because, um, A, this has been going on for a very long time and normally I'm done with a cold or a flu in about two weeks and I've gone past it. And B, I do work with a large uh, population of mainland Chinese people, so I feel like it's more likely that I would have been exposed to coronavirus than maybe another person in the general population. So yes, I do feel like I should be tested. And I, I just want to make something clear here. Ben isn't saying, I sometimes come into contact with people who are Chinese, so I'm scared. That would be xenophobic. But Ben's job has him working closely with people who travel back and forth between the U.S. and mainland China. So Ben called his doctor. But they didn't tell him to come in for testing. They want me to stay basically sequestered for a few more days on my own before we move on to testing. Uh, They also told me that they didn't have access to a test at this time. But again, we're going to circle back to testing in about two days. Which brings us to today, Tuesday. Ben thought he was finally getting that test this afternoon, more than a week after he talked to his doctor about it. But while we were recording this very episode, his doctor canceled that test because they couldn't find a lab to process it. So it makes sense that Ben is feeling a bit frustrated. He says he feels like he's in total limbo right now. He doesn't know if he's coronavirus sick or just regular sick. And all he wants is an answer. But there is another side to this story. There is a reason our health systems are making the choices they're making, I think. Which is why I called up my friend, Dr. Timothy Philip Brugiel. Or, as I know him, Tip. Hello? Hey, Tip. Hey, what's up? He's an urgent care physician in Louisiana. And he sees hundreds of patients a year with the common cold. You've been having a busy week? It's been pretty busy, yeah. I would say probably half the patients that I see are presenting with some kind of URI or upper respiratory infection uh, complaints. And that includes the common cold or just a you know viral upper respiratory infection. So if lots of people have the common cold, that's kind of one of the concerns right now, right? Like the symptoms kind of seem like they're the same as COVID-19, coronavirus? Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Um, I've seen a lot of patients over the last couple of days and in the back of my head thought this could be COVID-19. But even if he's thinking that, the guidelines, at least at the time that we talked to him, were only to test people who could possibly have been in contact with the disease. And I think the main takeaway is information, protocol, it's all changing really fast, minute by minute even. While we were on the phone, Tip told me that if a patient comes in with those cold symptoms, those upper respiratory infection symptoms, he tests them for flu, strep, you know, the usual. If it's none of those things, and if there's a chance that they could have come into contact with the disease, well then... 
those are the kind of people who I would then refer to the emergency room. And it's really going to be up to the emergency room physician at that point to decide if they need to do the, the coronavirus test or not. But as far as he knew, Louisiana didn't have any tests yet. He just knew the ER would be in contact with an infectious disease specialist. But turns out, while we were on the phone, that protocol was changing. Tuesday morning, Tip sent me a note with some pretty major updates. And because this is radio, I made him read it out loud. Hey, TJ. It's Timothy. I just wanted to send you a quick update after talking last Thursday. Shortly after our interview, I quickly realized that I was wrong about testing in Louisiana. The state started rolling out COVID-19 testing while we were talking. At my shift the next day, I had to coordinate the first test for our clinic with my organization and the State Department. And now, elsewhere in the state, Louisiana has confirmed its first case. I also realized the importance of the CDC's simple recommendations. If you think you have had exposure and are sick with the novel coronavirus, stay home. If you think you are too sick to stay home, then call before coming in and exposing other people. We were given specific instructions not to send this person to the hospital for testing, since they were otherwise stable and would only risk exposing seriously ill patients to what could be deadly for them. So, stay home, call your doctor, be as patient as possible until your doctor says, hey, you know what? It's time for you to get tested. But what does that test look like? How do you get it? What happens after you get it? The synthetic swab that you um, put into the nares, and it actually goes pretty far back, and you hold it in there for uh, about 10 seconds and collect um, sputum and secretions from the back of the nose. That's Dara O'Carroll. He's an ER doctor in Honolulu, Hawaii. He told us what happens if someone who does have COVID-19 ends up in the hospital. Obviously, they try to limit interaction without having protective gear. And gear in this case doesn't mean your average surgical mask. We're talking heavy duty, the N95 respirator mask. And in this small community hospital, out in the middle of the Pacific, things are getting sticky. We're rationing masks. This is what um, a typical policy would be, is that if I was worried about somebody that had an infectious disease that I could catch, no matter what, doesn't matter what it is, I would use an N95 mask as I go in, I would throw it away as I go out. And then anytime I had to go back into that negative pressure room, I would use a new mask. However, what we've been told now is that that mask that we are using, we're going to have to save. This is just one example from one of the many community hospitals across the nation of how healthcare providers on the front lines are already struggling to meet demand. And what we as a community need to do is do everything we can to protect ourselves and and our families and our communities so that um, if it does spread, it, it, it is in a slowest fashion so that we're all better prepared and so that our healthcare um, sector can take care of patients. That was Dr. Nancy Messonnier, the director of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases, speaking on Monday during a CDC briefing. A few hours later, the nation heard from President Trump and Vice President Mike Pence, who has been charged with running the nation's COVID-19 response. Here's what Pence said Monday. Uh, we have uh, we have bought a considerable amount of time, according to all the health experts, to deal with the coronavirus here in the United States. But that's not what we heard. While doctors on the ground are working diligently around the clock, we're also hearing reports that the country is botching its outbreak response. And that story's next. 
Stay with us. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. To get a sense of what our government is doing to tackle this crisis and whether we're even doing it right, we called up a reporter who has a lot of experience covering this kind of thing. Hi, this is Caroline. Caroline Chen is a reporter with ProPublica. She covered the Ebola crisis that lasted from 2014 to 2016. And before that? Um, I was a teenager uh, in Hong Kong during the SARS outbreak. I was 13. And so obviously I wasn't paying attention to it in the same way that I am now as an adult. Um, like at the, that time, I sort of had this very teenage perspective, which was they, they closed the schools. And I was like, well, I'm I'm upset that I don't get to see my friends and I wanted to go back to school. And yeah, granted, that's a very teenage, pers- you know, kind of perspective. But I, I did from that time develop a, a huge respect for frontline healthcare workers because SARS, comparatively speaking to uh, COVID-19 was very deadly. Um, and there were numerous uh, healthcare workers in Hong Kong who really just worked around the clock until until they succumbed. And uh, we know from the data we've seen so far on COVID-19 that it is, for the most part, uh, a, a relatively mild disease, especially in people under the age of, of 70. But it has been fatal for um a lot of doctors and nurses, because they just work themselves to the bone. So she's seen this thing firsthand, twice. And the question we had for her is, are we ready from what you're seeing out there? And and what does ready even really look like? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. This is is a question that I'm asking as I'm reporting. Um, And I think that I... So far, I can say we haven't been ready with testing, right? We we clearly didn't have the testing capacity ready to go um, when we needed it. And just to give an example uh, for your listeners, um, there were calls, you know, much earlier on by early February, where where there were scientists who wanted to do what's called sentinel surveillance. Um, so what is what is sentinel surveillance? That's the desire to be proactively looking for cases. And the criteria they were calling for was for people who come into the hospital who have pneumonia um, and who or who have you know symptoms that line up with COVID-19, but who test negative for flu. And we have rapid flu tests, so you can test test for the flu. Um, and they wanted to then, you know, if you test negative for flu, but you have all the symptoms, um, to then test people for COVID-19. And that would allow us to start to watch out and, and, and look out for the spread of COVID-19. So that's proactive. And at that time, um, we didn't have enough capacity. And, you know, frankly, we still don't have the capacity to do this in a widespread fashion in the United States. Um, 
So I think that's a ball we dropped, which would have been helpful uh, for the United States to sort of have that as a, a potential warning signal. And in fact, um, it, earlier in February, uh, the CDC had announced a pilot program in five cities in Seattle, which we now know is a hotspot mm -hmm. in San Francisco. We've seen cases pop up there in LA, in New York, and in Chicago, and said, we're going to do sentinel surveillance. Um, and and then just didn't get started because I, I suspect it's because they didn't have the resources and the testing capacity to do that. Why, were, why weren't we able to do this? Was it the money wasn't there? Was the buy-in, you know, not at the level, you know, of where we're at now? I mean, I think a lot of people, when they hear you, when they hear you say that, they're going to say, wait, what? Um, specifically with the tests. Um, one thing that my reporting found is that for some reason, um, someone in the U.S. government decided that the, we would design our own test. Um, and the test that the CDC designed is, is, is following a different design uh, than the tests, that, the tests that are used in different parts of the world. Um, and the WHO in, endorsed a protocol that, that was designed um, uh, by a team in Germany, which is used widely across the world. So for some reason, we, we, we in the U.S. decided not to just copy that, and we decided to design our own tests. And I mentioned earlier that there was a batch of test kits that were sent out around uh, early February and and that there was a faulty component to that. Mm -hmm. um, and that had to do with, with the design that we had come up with. And, and it took a while to resolve that and to drop that faulty component. And if we had not gone our own way and if we had not taken so long to like drop that, that faulty component, we could have saved a lot of time. But as to, you know, sort of the motivations behind those decisions, I'm not sure. And I'm, I'm hoping to find out more as I, I, as I do more reporting. So I'm not going to lie. That's more than a little concerning, right? Sure. But we're not at complete and total panic yet. Now is an important time, right? Like I, I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> explain to people that there's no need to panic, especially on an individual level, right? Like at this point in time, it is still far more likely that you would catch the flu is still flu season than the coronavirus, right? But at a societal level, like this is a crucial time for us to prepare and to take steps that can help slow transmission. And this will help um, our healthcare system as a whole not get slammed um, um, and give them more time to prepare. So this is a critical moment now. What do those steps look like in, in your view? Yeah, so so I think it's really interesting to see, for example, I'm in New York City, um, and yesterday at a press conference, you know, uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio said, um, if you can, said to employers, like, if if you can have your workers work from home, you know, let them work from home, or if you can let them stagger hours to come into the office, have them stagger hours come into the office. You know, why would a mayor say something like that? Like, I don't think he's saying, like, there's imminent threat that if you get on the subway, you're going to catch COVID-19. That's not what he's coming from. What he's coming from is it's a simple you know, statistics thing that, like, if there are more people crowning the subway there's a higher chance that like COVID-19 will spread faster. The less crowding there is, 
the slower spread will happen. So it is inevitable that there will be more cases in this city. And, you know, the mayor knows this and his public health department knows this. But what they don't want is there for there to be like a spike in cases really soon that like slam the hospitals. They want for there to be fewer cases spread out over more time so that the hospitals don't get slammed. We know that we're going to see more cases, as you said. You know, in your view, do you think that hospitals generally are prepared for what's coming down the pike? Um, And, you know, what's the worst and best case scenario here? So I can't give you a blanket answer, Mm -hmm. but I will say that, you know, the U.S. in general has not traditionally invested a ton of money into infection control. Mm -hmm. Um, So and I and I think what our reporting is showing is that there's huge variability across the country in terms of which hospitals are well prepared and and have done a lot of drills and then which hospitals we've I've talked to some some healthcare workers who are like there doesn't seem to be much of a plan and that's kind of freaking me out so there's a wide range um and and that is concerning to me too because you know the average person doesn't have a lot of choice over which hospital they walk into, you know. Um, The other area that I'm looking into right now um, has to do with supplies. So um, both personal protective equipment, which includes masks, gowns, and gloves, which we're already hearing um, are expected to be limited, um, and also things like ventilators and respirators and whether or not there are going to be enough of that and what the plans are um, around Uh, that type of equipment if there is an expected shortage. So again, that goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is if we can take steps now to slow transmission, that helps your local hospital. Places like South Korea have been testing way more people. And I think this goes kind of to what you just said. You know, do you think the U.S. should be testing more people actively if we had the capacity? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I think, I think, um, um, someone I was interviewing a couple weeks ago said something that I thought was was very smart and descriptive, which is that the disease is ahead of the data. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that's a position we want to be in. I think we want to be on top of the disease and, and knowing uh, where it is, uh, in, in what volume we, we have it, um, can only help us better respond. Um, now, I'm not saying go willy-nilly and just you know, offer tests to anybody who wants them. But again, I'm talking about strategic testing, you know, people who have um, the, the, the correct symptoms, but who are testing negative for flu. Like, mm-hmm. I think it's very reasonable to say we should test that population. Um, but that would be a large population, right? Because right. Um, it's, it's, it's still flu season. So, you know, if we took everybody who had uh, flu-like symptoms, but who tested negative for flu, I, we would need way, way more capacity um, for testing than we have right now. Um, so we've got a long ways to go. But what does that mean, our capacity for testing? What is our capacity? Why aren't we testing everyone? Well, first off, there's that whole thing about how we developed our own test, which really slowed us down. But also... Yeah, so I think there are a lot of numbers being thrown around right now. And 
and it's really confusing for the American public. And so one of the things I was trying to explain is that you really have to pay attention to the units. So what's the difference between a kit and a test, a test and a sample, and the unit that I care about the most, which is people? So let's I'll try to break this down a little bit. So the, the kits that you keep hearing about are, are these kits that are made by the CDC. And each kit... Um, I, I try to explain it as it's kind of like a blue apron kit. So there are a bunch of ingredients in it and it takes some setup. So the CDC was shipping these kits and each kit has enough material to run about uh, seven to 800 tests. You then have to divide it by two because the recommendation is to run two samples per person so that you can double check that you're getting the right response, uh, the right answer. Um, so that means that each kit nets out to um, enough tests for 350 people that you can test. And then the other thing that you have to keep in mind too, though, is labor capacity. So the uh, As Association of Public Health Labs was telling me that for most public health labs, you can only run about 100 samples a day. That's just how much manpower they have. So again, I, I just said 100 samples per day. And remember what I said, you have to divide that by two. So that's 50 people a day that they can test for mm -hmm. in most of the public health labs. So that again gives you this idea that, you know, even if you have kits upon kits, you know, millions of tests that you hypothetically have the material for, you know, if in your area there are only a few labs and each lab only has the capacity to test, you know, 50 to 100 people a day, you just can't run that many tests. Mm -hmm. So what is changing right now, <laughs> this is the other thing, as you mentioned, yeah. things are changing day by day, is that the big commercial testing giants are starting to come aboard, I think, this week. And that's going to make a big difference because then we're not just reliant on the public health labs. So maybe we lost a little bit of time, but right now we're living in a crucial moment, a moment that we'll be following next time on Viral. Viral, Coronavirus, is a three Uncanny Four production. The show is hosted by me, TJ Raphael, with reporter Emily Saul. Our senior producer is Lena Richards. Our associate producer is Rahima Nasa. Our editor is Adam Davidson, and our fact checker is Parker Henry. This episode was mixed by Tim Einenkel. We'll be coming to you next week with the latest on COVID-19. In the meantime, rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. It helps listeners like you find us.